I'm Brett Moffat, and you're listening to In The Frame. In the visual arts, there are famous artists publicly lauded for their contribution to our culture. But behind the scenes, there are critical roles conducted by people who rarely become household names, such as curators, historians, and art dealers. And if it wasn't for their support, many artists of the past, and in the here and now, may still be working in obscurity. My guest today is one such game changer. Emma Landis is an art consultant and historian whose passion for art stokes the fires of Toronto and Ontario's art scenes. Emma has a PhD in art history and visual studies and is the principal for Ritchian Art. She is an expert on the American abstract expressionist painter Clifford Still and through her research uncovered previously unknown insights on one of abstract expressionism's founding fathers. We discuss art collecting, her lifelong devotion to art, and Emma's unique gift, instilled by her late father, of applying lessons of the past to the social issues of the present and future. What my dad taught me about history and the importance of remembering what's happened in the past to help us learn about the present and the future, I really took all of that with me to the art world and um, how I look at art and the kinds of art that I like collecting. Today, we welcome Emma Landis to be in the frame. Hi, Emma. Thanks for joining us today. During the course of our discussion, my listeners will get to know you a lot better. But for those who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Of course. Um, Well, firstly, thank you for having me here today. It's a a pleasure to be here. Um, So... At Rattan Art, we specialize, as Brett mentioned, in fine art advisory services, as well as public art management. So fine fine art advisory services pertains mostly to aiding um, entry-level art collectors, as well as more established art collectors, refine their collection, helping them train their eye and learn what artwork speaks most to them and um, helping helping them feel confident in their purchases. So um, while the artwork is something that they must love, it is also something that they want to feel um, that they've made an intelligent investment in. So I help uh, clients with that process. And then more recently within the last few years, we've expanded into public art management which is primarily helping developers, uh, mostly in Toronto really, because Toronto's experiencing rapid growth over the last several years. And so we have this section 37 agreement with the city where developers have the opportunity to put public art in their development sites. So that's uh, really beneficial to the broader community as well as the developers. Okay, that's um, and do you find the 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 private like I guess the private collectors that come to you versus the the public um, process is that different? Are they are they searching for the same um, for the same thing, or or is the public is is the public sort of aspect of it? Are they looking to make more of a statement with with the with the piece of art they they acquire or commission? 
It's a great question. I would say the main difference between the two practices is that with public art management, there are more people involved. So the developer is naturally involved as they're the one paying for it and it's going on their site. But the city is also very involved, especially in the beginning phases of the project. There's also um, an art jury that has to be part of the, the selection process for the artist. So, and of, naturally you have to keep the public in mind uh, and the neighborhood that it's going in. Ideally, it would speak to that specific audience. Whereas for private collectors, you're really just working with an individual or a couple. Uh, there's often a lot of differences in opinions, even just between a married couple, of course, but it, it's just two people. So it's, it's a totally different uh, battlefield, if you will. <laughs> Absolutely. And do they, do, do both, do they come to you with the budget and say, this is how much we're looking to, to spend or, or, or they come to you saying, look, we want to invest in art. Um, well, I guess more so with private looking to invest in art. What would you suggest is a, is a good place to start? Um, so developers naturally, they've already had to do a lot of budgeting, just simply the nature of their project. So they typically come to me with a very specific budget in mind. Um, I can help them, um, oversee the budget and help them break down that budget into different categories, but they have an overall figure in mind. Collectors, um, more private collectors often don't have a specific budget it's more if they see something they love and they feel strongly about it then they may be more prepared to spend a little bit more money um, but everyone has everyone has a different definition of what a lot of money is and what what is less so i help them figure out what that means to them yeah I, the the other thing i was just thinking as you were saying that too is um Public art has different requirements, doesn't it? Like if it's if it's going to be, let's say, for instance, a sculpture um, in a in a piazza or something like that, it it needs to be built so that it won't require constant um, conservation. Uh, whereas, I suppose, with a private collector, if it's an oil painting and it's going to be in their living living room wall or something like that, um, it's I guess it's a totally different consideration, isn't it? Like from a Mm -hmm. uh, just from a, a physical perspective, um, so, so like a site-specific perspective. Absolutely. So with uh, public art that is in an outdoor setting, especially permanent works, the material has to be taken into consideration, um, especially in Toronto or other areas of Canada where we experience harsh winters and there's lots of salt you know, trying to melt the ice <laughs> on, on pathways and things like that. So the artwork has to be durable. And there's also um, considerations simply how durable is the artwork against graffiti and things like that, yeah. unfortunately, have to be considered as well. Um, whereas, of course, with a, a painting or a work on paper, there are certain considerations that need to be taken. Uh, for example, I would never suggest hanging uh, uh, delicate or historical work on paper near strong sunlight yep. in, in your home. Mm. So that type of thing, less, less serious um, or, or uh, less dramatic, I guess, 
um, elements that an indoor artwork would have to deal with, but there are still considerations. Mm. Have you, um, not necessarily in your direct experience, but have you heard of any disasters, like any public art disasters where, where it hasn't been able to, like a permanent piece of artwork hasn't been able to withstand the environment? Um, not so much due to weather, but I, there have been, um, not, not on my own projects, but there have been instances where there are challenges with engineering. So for example, works that were intended to move or be kinetic don't necessarily end up moving yeah. <laughs> or works that have lights or water features can be more challenging to maintain as well. Yeah. I once saw a, a documentary where they, um, the sculptures or the team recreated uh, Michelangelo's statue of David and they had to take it on the journey that Michelangelo's statue of David took to get to where it sort of finally, and that was, a, that was funnily enough, it was a committee process as well. Leonardo da Vinci sat on that committee to decide where that sculpture was going to be. Um, incidentally, Leonardo wanted it sort of tucked around the corner. <laughs> I think of the, of the main, um, you know, the main, the building in the main square. But um, anyway, it, it ended up being out in that main square for, I think, like several hundred years before they decided to 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 actually put it sort of like take care of it and put it within a museum. But um, it was, uh, yeah, like the, the process was insane. Like it was like on a cart and they had to get it through <laughs> archways and all kinds of things. It was, um, yeah, it must have been a hairy experience particularly for (laughs) watching watching that 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 sculpture um be moved but um the the other thing i was going to ask you about because with that that's that's the art consultancy side of your practice but you're also an art historian and that's 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 obviously been a very big part of your your studies and the, the work you continue to do can you tell me a little bit more about about your art historian background sure so I, um, without going too far back, I did my bachelor degree uh, in art history at Queen's University, which is in Kingston, Ontario, in Canada. And um, that was a really great education and a great start. The teachers there were incredible. And there's also a museum on campus that, it's called the Agnes Etherington Art Center, and they have original Rembrandts in that museum and a really wonderful collection, a somewhat surprising collection given that Kingston is not one of the major cities, <laughs> um, art cities in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what solidified my interest in art history. And then I um, took a break to work to see what kind of jobs were available to me in the arts. And then um, once I had a better idea of my career trajectory, I decided to do my master's in art history at Western University. And then I uh, worked at an auction house uh, in in Toronto. So I'm taking you through here a little of my history. And uh, so I did my PhD at the University of Victoria, which is the West Coast of Canada. And um, I did my master's and my PhD on a particular American artist named Clifford Still. Mm -hmm. And I'm working still on 
um, situating him not as an abstract expressionist as he's typically known, but as a regionalist, which uh, will will maybe shake things up a little bit for people who know his work, uh, but focusing more on his work from the 30s and very early 40s that transitioned to abstraction. Okay, uh, it's it's really interesting because. Um, it's interesting how an artist within the art world will develop this persona or, or people will develop a perception about an artist and it, and it's based on, on other research and it's obviously based on their lifetime as well. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about Clifford Still? Sure. So he actually is very well known for his personality, this um, sort of grumpy figure <laughs> and uh, as an American abstract expressionist. So part of the, one of the biggest movements in American art history, but there's a lot about his life and work that is still unknown or understudied because he had such um, tight parameters around how he managed his legacy and how his wife would manage his legacy after he died. Um, most of his work was kept in a barn in Maryland from the time that he died in 1980 until um, when the Clifford Still Museum opened, I think it was in 2011 that they opened. So there was a very long period where no art historians or journalists or anyone in the art world had access to his work. Um, but the Clifford Still Museum in Denver, they've done an amazing job documenting everything uh, that they've, they have 94% of his life's work at that museum. So now there's a lot of opportunity to learn more about him. And I'm interested in him partly too, as um, he spent quite a bit of his upbringing in the Canadian prairies. So while people know him as an American, a lot of his formative years were spent here in Canada, wow. which a lot of Canadians don't know either. Right. So that's really fun to explore. Yeah, that's that's really special. Do you do you feel like because he was a regional artist and he was he based in Denver? Was he? Um, he wasn't based in Denver. He was born in North Dakota, mm -hmm. and he spent um, a lot of time in Washington state mm. where he did his education and then he was in California and then in New York mm. but he he's he has a special connection to Denver which is why it ended up there partly anyway okay did did he um in his New York years did he used to run with de Kooning and Jackson Pollock and those guys or was he kind of a little bit on the outside of, of the of the, the the big the ones that I guess the ones that most people would know about he did run in those circles and it was actually Mark Rothko who pulled him from San Francisco to New York. Mark Rothko came to San Francisco for a teaching opportunity and they became fast friends there. And Rothko said, you have to come to New York. This is where it is. So he, he drew him eastward and introduced him to the circle. And uh, Barnett Newman was another um, Mark Rothko, Barnett Newman, and Clifford Still are often spoken of as a trio, mm -hmm. but um, not too long after Still arrived in New York, he kind of became overwhelmed by the commercialism of the New York scene and 
pull, you know, he withdrew from it almost as quickly as he burst onto the scene. Mm. And that was a personal decision that he made. He was doing really well, mm. um, but he, he was really uh, disenfranchised by the experience. Absolutely. When, when, did, it, when did abstract expressionism like really explode? explode? Like was there a, a, a time or a, a year even where it was like it really took off and, and that actually happened? Well, it's best known for happening in the 50s, but it really started to emerge in the 40s. And that's that's when Still actually started working on abstraction. It was in the very early 40s. So people often talk about his work as being some of the first of this movement. And part of Still's mythology is that he was working out West alone and he had developed this style and he was really the, the father of the movement. Um, but of course he wasn't alone. It just wasn't the New York scene. <laughs> and uh, um, so anyway, the mid forties and the fifties are really when abstract expressionism came to the fore. Yeah. So it's such an interesting age in American art because there's, I, I think of artists like Edward Hopper and Andrew Wyeth, who are very much that more, a lot more traditional realist uh, work. And then, and then there was this, um, this new, this abstract expressionism and pop art were, were, were coming to the fore. And, and it's easy in hindsight to look back and sort of see you join the dots, but back then, um, it, it probably it would have been very avant-garde and revolutionary, especially um, abstract expressionism, because that was such a departure of of work in the early twentieth uh, century, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a great point. All of these movements they were working um, at in overlapping time periods. It's not as some some of the simplified art history textbooks would tell you that. The movement happened from this year to this year, and then it stopped, and then this, it moved on to the next one. But a lot of these artists who aren't necessarily part of the same movement would interact with other artists doing different things, and they all learned from each other. Yeah, yep. Um, Nobody likes to be categorized either. <laughs> no, no, and and I think too that it, it probably gets presented that way. I guess um, especially in school textbooks to make it easier to digest because um, mm-hmm. as you say it was it was totally overlapping and um i've read some of edward hopper's writings where he talks about i think where the realists were trying to kind of galvanize and uh, against this you know this invasion of abstraction and 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 what it's going to do to american art and that sort of thing um so uh yeah it, it was it was um yeah, it was, it was such an interesting time. But going back to the collecting of art, um, over over my years of, of being an artist and, and, and meeting different collectors, I get the feeling that some people are intimidated by collecting art. So they feel inept at making the right decision. And the art market to outsiders can often feel esoteric. Um, I know I get um, newsletters from Artsy and Art Basel and, and those kinds of um organizations and you sort of 
you wonder you like you wonder where all these trends are coming from if there's if there's big players in the art scene that are calling these these people out or it's just new up and coming artists that are really on fire and capturing everyone's attention so could you provide some advice for anyone interested in um, acquiring art um, or or wish to make a, a big art decision but doesn't know where to start what could they do mm-hmm. I would say a couple things. One is to be patient and uh, take your time. Take the time to look at as much art as you possibly can. So, and ideally in person. And it's been challenging the last year with COVID to view art in person. Um, a lot of the museums here anyway are closed still. Um, but the more you can see in person, the more you can train your eye and the more you learn about what aesthetically you are drawn to and also maybe how different artists tackle different issues that you may be close to. So if, I mean, just speaking very broadly, if you were really connected to um, issues related to climate change and you see that many artists are trying to address this concern, you learn by looking often um, how you like to see that message being interpreted and expressed. I personally like um, art that has a bit of humor in it, art that is aesthetically appealing on first glance, but then on second glance, you can see the deeper meaning as well. So artwork that has those multiple layers mm. can uh, have long lasting meaning to your collection. Yeah. And, and I, what I love um, about what you're saying is, is there's no right or wrong way to collect art, but as you say, be patient, um, get, get around to the galleries, look around actually. Um, and, and, and I guess, become more educated about the artist, about, about the kinds of works you're looking at and the, and the, the works that appeal to you. Um, and, and that in itself is an investment, even if it's not necessarily a, um, um, a, a financially uh, motivated investment, it, it'll still be an investment for something that's, um, you know, that you'll actually enjoy owning um, and displaying. Um, mm, I know a lot of people say to me, I'm not an art person, so I don't really know what I'm doing because they're um, nervous that because they don't have a formal arts education, they don't know what they're doing. But you don't need a formal arts education to be a collector or to be interested in art. You just need to be open and expose yourself to as much as you possibly can. Absolutely. And it's also a great point you raised as well about actually getting out there and seeing it in the flesh. I find... um, it's very easy. Like it's an easy trap to actually judge art based on what we see on a computer screen, but it, it, it can be sort of no further from the truth really, like in terms of experience a work of art in the flesh. Um, and, and that could be, that's purely based, I guess, on the physical qualities of the work, being able to maybe see the texture in a painting or actually feel the size of an, uh, an installation or a sculpture, isn't it? It's, um, mm-hmm. it's very different and it, and I feel much more moved, I suppose, when I can actually be in the physical 
space of an artwork as opposed to the proxy version of, of looking at it through a computer monitor. Um, Absolutely. And as you mentioned, a lot of it has to do with scale. It's hard to get a sense of scale on, um, on the computer. It's hard to understand the texture or the physical qualities of the work. And you can also, I mean, let's say it's portraiture. Some really talented artists can create portraits that look like they're looking back at you no matter where in the room you are. You can't capture that on a screen. No. And uh, I like to compare it to, to having, it's buying art online can be somewhat like using a Kindle or an e-reader. There's absolutely benefits to doing that, but there's just something really special about having an actual book in your hand. Just like there's something special about going in person to see an artwork. Absolutely. I think it's, it's that sensory um, sensation, isn't it? It's, it's holding it. It's being able to see that texture, uh, not necessarily touching the painting, or but but being able <laughs> yeah. to say, uh, you, like seeing a de Kooning or um, up close or a Rembrandt up close, and actually seeing how that paint is applied. And and I know with Rembrandt, it it sometimes it looks like it's been applied with a shaving brush. It's just there's there's you just don't know how he did it um, with with and and that's hard to see unless you have a really good photograph or a high res image, which is, which is like taking it all in. It's actually can be really hard to discern um, mm -hmm. that, that kind of technical stuff. Um, so, so back to you, like back to your, what, um, what would you consider to be so far your proudest work achievements? Like, is there any artwork or collections you may have curated for? Well, um, something I'm working on right now, I'm really proud of. Uh, I'm working with a developer on um, a condo in downtown Toronto called Artists Alley. And it's just such a privilege. And I'm so grateful to be working with a developer who cares so deeply about art in general and art for this condo. So not only will there be public art outside, the building but inside the lobby and in the public spaces of the um, building there will be works by really important artists international artists and um, there's also designed into the architecture a gallery in in the condo so it's a really unique building and i'm really excited to be working on that and we can't announce artists that we've commissioned for the public art um, quite yet uh, but it is finalized I'm really excited to announce that one once we're allowed to. <laughs> oh, congratulations that sounds amazing um, did you get did you get freedom in in terms of the work you cr curated for that like was it or was there a theme um, involved or was it really sort of pulling together a collection that was going to actually work in the in you know for the site? Um, the artwork in the collection is, it really, uh, the focal point of it was to get the best art possible from international artists that were colorful and uh, recognizable and engaging works of art. So there wasn't a super tight theme around the collection, but 
um, actually the presentation center for this this building or the sales center was actually designed to look like a gallery. So that was really fun. We had a lot of the artwork up and um, the didactic panels beside each artwork. So it really felt like you were in a gallery space. So it was really unique. And um, it's in an area of Toronto that is very arts focused. There's one of Canada's best art universities, OCAD University is there. The Art Gallery of Ontario is also one of um, Canada's largest art galleries. Auction houses, it's a really busy area for arts professionals and students and visitors of all kinds. So it just really felt like it was adding to the urban landscape um, to have this. It was a presentation center, but it was a gallery with very impressive artwork in it. So wow, that sounds that sounds amazing. I can't wait to see that. That'll be really exciting to see that when it comes to fruition and it's finally complete mm-hmm. to actually see all that work in context. Um, so I guess when you're when you're curating work and working for clients, you're you have you have their interest top of mind. Do you have a personal vision for art? So um, is there something, I guess, that, that potentially creates a legacy, but, but uh, I guess a vision that you're working towards that, that perhaps sits outside of the, the other work and consultancy work that you do? Um, well, for myself, uh, if I were collecting for myself, I like to collect artwork from a diverse group of artists and I like to collect over time so that the artists I collect when the artworks I collect speak to different issues of my time. So um, if I were to collect, for example, everything in a span of five years, well, that wouldn't really capture um, everything that I've experienced as a person in this time frame. Um, being my life (laughs) so I really that's what I like to do for my own collection is take my time think about the issues that the artists are addressing consider um, the different perspectives that these artists can offer and just having um, I I don't want to say a broad collection but have a collection where the artists speak to each other. So uh, I have, for example, an artwork by an East Coast Canadian artist named Omar Badrin next to a group of seven artwork in my home. And to me, these artists really speak to each other because they come from such different perspectives. One is contemporary, one is historical. Um, One of them speaks about his particular challenges being adopted of color in a very white part of Canada and how he navigated that. Whereas the group of seven is a landscape painter who often omitted people altogether from his work, which is controversial in the context of Canadian art. So um, I like collecting um, 
different artists that can speak to each other kind of what would these artists say to each other they have they have some common ground but they come at the topic from different perspectives absolutely does that make sense <laughs> you know it does it does and what i love about that insight to your collection is the way that you can collect art so that it, it becomes a meaningful collection of work um as you say where the artists are all talking to other to each other but uh, it, it's it's a collection with a purpose, um, and um, I guess at the end of the day, if you were to take all of the art out of out of let's say my home, um, I guess it it tells a picture of me. But it's it's um, I, I guess with what you're suggesting though, it's it's really interesting because um, that offers a way for for I guess our audience and, and people listening who may not be so familiar with collecting art that you can, you can look at it lots of different ways. It's, it's not necessarily just about something to, to, to go onto a wall, but look at things that are meaningful to you that, that you can reflect on. And, and I find that um, really, um, really good works of art. You do that when you walk past them, they it's 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 like they're talking to you but you you may think about it differently from one day to the next you know depending mm -hmm. on depending on how it's displayed um mm -hmm. i do have people too who when they come to me if they're an, an, a new collector they'll say i really like this but it doesn't match my couch or my living room and they feel so relieved when i tell them it doesn't have to <laughs> you know so That's, yeah yeah, art is is uh, can be really meaningful without necessarily being simply something to put on the wall to match the drape, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, in honour and remembrance of your late father, you established the Donald Stewart Richen Research Award at the University of Regina for students specialising in history or art of the Canadian prairies. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that's going? Sure. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up, actually. I'm really proud to have done that in honor of my um, late father. He really was the person who inspired me to get into art in the first place. And he, I mean, when I was very young, I was interested in being an artist. Uh, but then, of course, other hobbies took the place of, of being a practicing artist. So our art history became the natural path for me from there. But he's the one who really, he took me to the museums and he really encouraged me. And he was an archivist and historian himself. And so I learned a lot about preservation from him and the specialness of history and learning about our past from him and he went to the University of Regina and that's actually where I was born was in Regina which is in the prairies in Canada so I I felt like that was an appropriate it was actually also the university where my parents met before they moved out here <laughs> to uh, to Ontario and so it felt like an appropriate place to honor him and um, I wanted the scholarship to be for students who were studying either art history or history, just because of my interest in art history and, of course, my dad's interest in, in history and his 
career in history. Um, and it's, I, I started that um, with my husband actually in 2018. So it's been great to see multiple students receive that award, you know, over the last few years. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, can you tell, tell me a little bit more about your dad's um, interest in art and, and history generally? Sure. So he um, studied history and he became the archivist for the city of Regina. And then uh, my family moved to Kingston, Ontario, where he became uh, an archivist and the director of the Queen's University Archives, which was a really exciting career move for him. And despite having to move to Ontario, (laughs) I I joke that people in the in different parts of Ontario have, or on of Canada have different, obviously, perspectives of different places. So my family coming from the prairies like St. John Cabot, Ontario. But um, yeah, I mean, it was wonderful growing up in Kingston and I would go to the university with my dad and my mom all the time. And I got to go into the archives and he would show me all the dusty interesting parts of history that people either donated or um he would help organize these these different artifacts and was also the privacy officer so he worked hard to ensure people's right to privacy so that's an important issue for me now as well and my older brother actually became an archivist um, too. So yeah. that's it's fun for him to continue the legacy um, of my father in that way. And um, and he also works at a university in, in Montreal. Lovely. Um, and you, you mentioned you mentioned earlier um, that you once considered being an an artist when you were you were younger and, <laughs> and can you take us can you say can you take us back to when you were a a, a a little girl and what really led you on this path um to becoming like I, th- I think I think obviously your dad's your mum and dad's influence with um with history would, would definitely feed into your um your interest in art history but but can you tell us a little bit more about about your um yeah growing up and 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 what what influenced you most? Mm. Uh, well, I'm one of four siblings, and I'm the third of four. And uh, so we had a really busy household, and I always really just got satisfaction from finding a quiet place and sketching. And just that was my peaceful space away from all the chaos of my siblings. And of course we had a dog. (laughs) There was, I mean, looking back, my family was actually quite a quiet family, but at the time growing up, it felt very busy. Um, But I, so I just got great satisfaction from being alone and having quiet time with just me and my pencil. Uh, So, and that was something that, I was proud of. I felt like this was something I was good at. 
And, you know, my sister would show her friends my sketches and my little sister did this and things like that. Um, so, yeah, that, that was kind of my experience. I really always was interested in details. And um, so this was an outlet for that. For, I just loved observing. I was never one to get a center of attention. I liked being the fly on the wall kind of. So these artistic pursuits were an outlet for that or an expression of what I was witnessing. But um, then I started, you know, I, I got a little older and I started doing other hobbies. And, you know, as you know well, you have to practice every day. You cannot let go of that. You need to keep your skills sharp. Um, and I did not. So um, at what, there's oh, there's some joke about art, all art historians are failed artists or something. So, I mean, that resonates a little bit with me too. So, so was there, um, was there a point, um, I'm, I'm guessing like when you, towards the end of high school where you thought, oh no, I need to, I need to pursue this path was, was art, um, was it, did you seriously consider becoming an artist or you felt at by that stage that, that you needed to, um, you, you were more inclined to look at, at art history? actually by the end of high school I thought I was going to do I had a very clear plan where I was going to do global development studies and French and this is my plan and I was going to work for an NGO and everything was all uh, figured out and then of course it wasn't um, I was in a phase where my mom had said you should really take art history when you get to university. And I thought, no, I have my plan. I'm not going to listen to my mom. <laughs> but uh, the, I think it was the next year I took an art history course and realized that maybe my mom did know me pretty well. So the rest is history with that. Mm. What, I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing, I guess, from, um, from you, you mentioned your dad's previous work with privacy and I guess even some of the artwork you've 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 collected um that there's a really strong current of of social issues that that you feel really deeply about is is that something that you've um is that something that that has has always come naturally through you know from i guess from um younger times when you were growing up yes i would say so it's um when i would say starting in middle school um, I was becoming much more aware of the world. And in high school, I took every class that I could related to world issues or global development or human geography. And so, and through um, what my dad taught me about history and the importance of remembering what's happened in the past to help us learn about the present and the future. I really took all of that with me to the art world and um, how I look at art and the kinds of art that I like collecting. Mm. And, and do you um, like, we see evidence of it 
um, I guess everywhere. Like I know here where where I live in Australia, um, in terms of I think the summers are getting hotter, for instance. But um, and in in terms of rainfall, it's 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 quite erratic at times. But do you see the the impact of global warming in Canada and particularly, I guess, on the prairies is is that is that definitely being felt there as well? It doesn't make the news as much as Australian. Um, you know, all the fires and everything that you guys have had has been so tragic. But certainly the discussions in Canada lie around drought in the prairies, um, the ice, polar ice cap melting, concerns around, you know, wildlife in the north, such as polar bears not having um, enough ice to make transport themselves from different parts of the Arctic uh, because there's too much water now and rising water levels um, because we obviously have three coasts. Um, the only one not being a coast is our border with the U.S. So water concerns are at the forefront in Canada mm. for sure. Mm. Mm. So um, looking at the now, uh, you mentioned the development that you're working on. Is there anything else that's on the horizon, anything uh, really exciting that you're looking forward to working on in the future? Uh, yes. Now, some of them I'm not sure how much I can say, but one of them is another development. Um, it's in Etobicoke, which is just west of Toronto, and that, that'll be a really exciting project as well. Um, the theme of that condo is Notting Hill in London. So um, I'm excited to see what kind of colorful, interesting artwork that we can bring to that site. And there's not a lot of art in that area, that particular area where the development is. So I think that'll be really important for the neighborhood. Um, and I'm working on some exciting ideas with, uh, someone based in Calgary, Canada. That, I, I don't know how much I can say about, <laughs> but just some, um, I guess, educational content for the public. I think that's as, as far as I can go at the moment, but lots of exciting things happening for sure. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today and the insights you provide us. Um, it's, it's been great um, to, to find out more about you, more about um, your work and your consultancy. So uh, you, you, as, as I mentioned, you're, you offer art consultancy that specializes in public art management and fine art advisory services. However, um, your specialization is in Canadian and North American art but you're also well qualified and have the network to consult anywhere in the world. For anyone who'd like to know more or reach out to you, where's the best place to connect and follow your work? Um, well, you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is at Richan Art. That's R-I-C-H-A-N-A-R-T. Or I'm also on LinkedIn as my name, Emma Landis, or my company has a page as well as Richan Art. And my website is www.rochanart.com. 
Fantastic. And we will include that information in the show notes as well. So, um, but thanks again, Emma. I really appreciated your time um, talking to you and, and thank you for being with me uh, in the frame today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Thanks again.